0: your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions concerns and needs ours is hard true the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces equipment and accessories for over 90 years partner with their trusted team of experts along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb Alex Rybakov and Dustin Taylor to bring the surface provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. Podcast For the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world, today is Monday, February 22nd, the first Grand Slam of the 2021 season officially in the books, and a surprise to perhaps no one. It's Naomi Osaka and Novak Djokovic emerging as our singles champions, joining me on today's podcast to break down our two finals matches, offer a few takeaways from the event at large, and then preview this week's action onto because let me tell you folks the action never does sleep on the atp and wta tours you know him as the forefather of the forehand slice a former denison men's tennis great the only undefeated high school tennis coach in missouri state history and of course our crack rackets do everything it's james foster mcdonald jamie how are you doing today
1: Good, good just riding that high of adrenaline uh, after an electric Australian <laughs> Open Now I'm doing okay, I'm recovered. I saw the match I stayed up and saw the matches I needed to. a little disappointed at how uh, sort of pedestrian and straightforward the finals were but hey, it was a good event and good to have that sort of tennis back.
0: I I think the adrenaline finally wore off for me last night. I slept like 12 hours, and of course, we had a Cracked Rackets adult tournament, which was so much fun for us to get to run an NTRP sectional event, and on top of that, I had to make the drive to Champaign, and I got to call a fantastic Ohio State 4-1 victory on the road at Illinois, but yeah, no, I mean, we have had so much tennis over these past few weeks. Certainly, as you mentioned, it was a little bit anticlimactic with our finals, nevertheless, still two. victories. Very fun matches for us to discuss on today's podcast. That's what we are going to be doing again. And then we will preview all of this week's action, let all of you listeners know who is playing on tour, where you can find all of those matches being played. But of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on this podcast because of the incredible support we get from all of you listeners, from our Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Midwest Sports. And look, The weather outside is getting just tempting enough in multiple places around the country that it may be time for you to consider getting back out on court, getting back outdoors, getting your game back to where you want it to be, if... You need to update any of your equipment. You need new shoes, new gear, new strings, new rackets. You can find it all with the best prices in the business with our friends at Midwest Sports. Just go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. Jamie, have you hit outdoors yet this year, or is it still Little bit too cold in Kansas City.
1: Little chilly, little chilly here. This is the first week, first like five day stretch that we've been out of single digits and or negative. (laughs) So uh, it's it's a little chilly. I will say it hit uh, hit deep thirties, and apparently tomorrow it may even touch fifty. So may have to break it out here soon. It's it's getting better and better, but uh, no, I'm not getting my hopes up because as soon as you do, there's that one week in March that kills you. So we'll see.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that slushy, like, kind of rain, kind of sleety sort of week. Yeah, no, completely agree with you there. We are far from the Australian summer here in the United States. Nevertheless, even if you're playing indoor tennis, our friends at Midwest Sports have you covered. MidwestSports.com, the promo code is cr 15 with that in mind, let's talk about these finals matches and we're going to go chronologically here on today's show. So let's start with the women's final and with Naomi Osaka, who continues to assert herself as the best women's player on a hard court unequivocally, perhaps just the best player in the women's game right now as she earns her fourth major title, knocking off Jennifer Brady, 6-4, 6-3, in the final When you look at this match, Jamie, there were a couple of inflection points. There were a couple of moments where you thought, okay, Osaka can pull away here. Okay, maybe this is where Jennifer Brady mounts her comeback. But my first takeaway after watching this match, it was really, really choppy, Jamie. There was a lot of broken tennis. There really was no rhythm from either of these players. Sans may be the start of Naomi Osaka's second set, but... It was an interesting final, nevertheless. I know it was a straight set victory for Osaka, but it never felt like a blowout.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, this really wasn't that high of a level of tennis um, for for a Grand Slam final. And again, that's not to be insulting to either player. Obviously, you know, showed some great tennis over the last couple of weeks. But um, I'm not sure this was deserving of that final title. And look... The thing is that hurts is Brady had chances. Um, I mean, look, I, I really thought she was going to be able to get that break at four all in the first. I mean, Osaka put an absolute patty cake second served right in the middle yeah. of box for Brady to pounce on, and she just didn't capitalize. Look, there were chances, and obviously Osaka, being that sort of—she has that experience. She took hers, um, and she made them count, even though she wasn't playing her best tennis. And look, that's what winners do. Um, so credit to her for being able to, to do what was necessary to get it done. But I mean, yeah, this was not great tennis. Neither of them even served over 50% in on their first serves. It just, a lot A lot could have been improved on both sides of the ball here. But um, again, you get into the finals, there's nerves, there's all sorts of things mm-hmm. happening, other factors. You do what you got to do, and, and that's what a champion of Osaka does.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look at the winner-to-unforced error ratios. Osaka was minus 8 with 16 winners against 24 unforced errors. Brady minus 16, 15 winners against 31 unforced errors. And yeah, I think... In particular, you look at the last two Grand Slam finals we've seen on the women's side, that Osaka Vika US Open match was spectacular, right? Mm-hmm. Those were two players, if not playing their best tennis, playing pretty close to it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about the French Open final. Iga Sviantek was just playing so well. It was just so clear she was the best player of the event. And it was a coronation, her beating of so- Sonia Kennan in that final, as much as anything else. You're right. This was not the cleanest, not the prettiest tennis between either of these players. Now, you have to give Jen Brady credit because, to your point, she made only 48% of her first serves. She uh, won 62% of those first serve points, 42% of her second serve points. Not a great serving performance by any metric, and yet she still managed to scrap and claw her way into so many of her, you know Naomi Osaka's service games by just... Really employing a go-for-broke mentality, which is kind of what you need when you're playing Naomi Osaka. You need to hit Osaka off of her spots because if you give her time to set, particularly on that forehand wing, given it's a little bit of a funky backswing for Osaka, she's going to hurt you. And to Jen Brady's credit... She got such great depth with her return of serves and she was able to get that ball either into the body of Osaka or at her feet and just, you know, it prevented Osaka from playing the plus one tennis she wants to play. Now, I think the most consistent ground stroke, consistent shot period throughout this match was the Osaka backhand and her ability to move the ball around the court with that backhand when she has time to really rip it cross court and then her ability to catch it early and go down the line. She did a great job of moving Jen Brady off of her spots as well. I think that's why we saw so many errors pile up for Brady. But there is a quality to Jen Brady's game, right? The big serve, the heavy forehand, it disrupts the rhythm of any power player. And so that's where the opportunities came from.
1: Yeah, 100%. And look, you said it right at the top. This match is going to be choppy. It was choppy. Look, this match was, it could have been cleaner, but it was never going to be, you know, long rallies both players getting in a ton of rhythm yeah. because both of their games rely on taking their opponents out of their rhythm with their extreme power and abilities to dictate and so we knew that this match was going to look a little different it wasn't going to be somebody dictating somebody counter-punching you know there were going to be short points it was going to be it was going to be as you said a little choppy the rhythm wasn't going to quite be there Um, And so, yeah, was there the potential for this to be of a higher level? 100%, especially with the level that these two displayed over the last couple of weeks. Absolutely. But nevertheless, you know, in in some respects, you got a lot of what you expected. short points, um, you know, trying to take big cracks at the ball whenever there was the opportunity to take even a single foot step into the baseline, dictating off the first serve it. Again, a lot of this went as expected. And Osaka was the favorite and she won in straights.
0: How many so there are 123 total points in the match. How many total rallies do you think went 9 shots or longer? What was that number again? 128 100, total. 123 total points.
1: 123 total. Um I'm going to say 6. You're good at this.
0: You are better at this cuz I know you're not cheating. You're an honorable man. Yeah, I'm not. Looking at it. There yeah. were 5. I mean yeah, if you watch the the highlights of this match or you watch the match live, it's very, very clear uh, that, yeah, there was a lot of plus one tennis. It was a lot of go for broke early in the rally. And if you miss, oh, well, I can't just afford to play a rally ball because that, you know, I'll get in trouble. But I do think Jennifer Brady needed to slow down. During you know particularly that second set and she really did once she went down for love in the second and just kind of you know focused on the depth of her shot more than the power and the placement and. There were moments when, again, she had the weapons to disrupt the Osaka rhythm. She did a really Uh good job of jamming that Osaka forehand with topspin. And, you know, if you hit flat to the Osaka forehand, I actually think she's fine with that. It's when you can hit that ball heavy that she starts to get uh, a little bit in trouble. And I think that's the side that the majority of her errors came from. But, yeah, I mean— Look, neither of these players approached the net more than five times. Yeah. Neither of these players Insane. had more than five break points. It was like it was just there was not much rhythm in this match. I I, I really it, it it was almost as simple as that.
1: Yeah, and look, it is worth spending a second on the net point. It, you know, debate not even debate here, but discussion here. I mean, a total of eight net points throughout this entire match. <laughs> like Brady yeah. goes two for three, and Osaka four for five, and that's it. Uh, And yeah, both of these people clearly more comfortable from the baseline. They love, you know, to to hit those big ground strokes from the back of the court. But still, um, especially from the Jim Brady camp, you got to think that there was maybe a little bit she could do here to employ a different type of pressure on Osaka. I don't know. Look, it is what it is. Osaka, she won and she had the recipe to win. So you can't really fault her for what she did. But it is a little weird to just see a match go exactly like this and, you know. Uh, you don't want to say boring, but like it was nearing boring. Yeah,
0: I would. It was power tennis. Yeah, it it was repetitive. How about that? Instead of sure. boring, repetitive is the kinder explanation. But yeah, I. To I, I be don't fair, think I any, said nearing boring. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Which I would say repetitive nears on boring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from time to time. I, again, I think it's a fair description. But, you know, the biggest difference in this match Naomi Osaka's first serve uh, and just serve in general made things just easy enough for her that she was able to scrap out the holds you need. And I think for Naomi Osaka now, you look in her last 52 weeks, she's 21-0. You look at her first serve number, she's only made 53.7% of her first serves, but she's winning 78.2% of those points, 52.9% of her second serve points. She's also winning 45% of her return points, which is just insane. Um, but, I mean... I. The larger discussion and the last point I just want to make about Osaka's performance here—curious if you would agree or disagree, because all of the numbers point to the fact. And for those of you who are curious, what Serena's career numbers are on the first serve—I mentioned those Osaka splits quickly. Uh, it's a seventy-eight point two percent win percentage on the first serve, fifty-two point nine on the second for her career. Serena's at seventy-four point four and forty-nine point seven splits. So it's a smaller sample size. But the numbers suggest that Naomi Osaka right now is serving better than prime Serena Williams. And I think the eye test suggests that she is serving at the level of prime Serena Williams. So I'm just curious, Jamie, where you fall on this topic because I do think she's the first person to enter that category. And of course, win percentage with the first serve isn't just about the serve. It's about the plus one ball as well and just what you do in the rally from there. But in terms of service games, again, I, I think I said this in our deciding point. If Serena Williams is 1A, I think Osaka thus far through her career is probably 1B.
1: Yeah, look, it, w- what she's been able to do has been impressive. Um, there's no doubting that. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of times, too, it, it's kind of hard to read too far into the statistics because you mentioned it. There's a lot that goes into that winning off a first serve. It's, you know, it's a similar discussion to talking about, well, is Djokovic you know, one of the greatest servers of all time? Not necessarily, but what he does with that first ball and how he's able to pull out, you know, wins and and holds, um, the stats would appear so and say so. So it's a little bit different. I would say Osaka, perhaps a little bit less revolutionary as Serena was the pioneer of this big serving attack. You know, she really put that to the forefront and Osaka has been able to do something very similar. But yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's very, very impressive the way that she's been able to hold. I, I will say there have been times where Osaka, again, it's so early in her career that it's really hard to compare. The shakiness factor has been a little different for me. I think there are opportunities that players have against osaka that i'm not used to seeing against serena at least when she was in her prime but look that's that's all probably getting a bit granular here the point is (laughs) yes the numbers she she puts up on the service uh service side has been very very impressive and so yeah i think it's nearing that category i think that's fair to say
0: i think for osaka there's the occasional lapse in just Focus That you never saw from Prime Serena. She'll throw in that bad service game with a couple double faults and a loose error. But, you know, for her recently, it's been how well she bounced back. Case in point, when Serena broke her for four all in that second set, Osaka hits three backhand winners and breaks her at love to get back up 5-4. And it's just kind of like, oh... Yeah no she's right here but I agree with you. I I you know it's a stupid thing but ace percentage wise Serena's over 11% Osaka's at 9.7 so you know as a singular shot the Serena Williams serve slightly more dominant again yeah. according to the numbers and I think that's fair as well to say but yeah the way Osaka just defends her serve, and I mean in four of her matches, and it was against Jabour, against Sue C, against Serena, against Jen Brady, she made fewer than 50% of her first serves. And in total, in those four matches, she did not drop a single set. And so that's that's just a really, really quality service performance from Osaka. The other question is how does her game translate to other surfaces? We really haven't seen that many repetitions for Osaka in her career on Really, either grass or clay. You look for her in, on grass courts during her career. Osaka, 18 and 14 overall. Now, that includes matches she played at the 50K level. You look for her on clay, 31 and 24 overall. So, she's played fewer than 100 matches on clay. She's played fewer than, you know, 40 matches on hard courts. And she already has, uh, on hard courts, excuse me, on grass courts. And she already has four slam titles to her name. I think there's like eight players in WTA history who have won eight Grand Slam singles titles or more in the open era. It, it, I will, it's crazy to say, but given how young Osaka is at age, what, 23? Like, I think fewer than eight would be surprising at this point, and that's a testament to what she's done so far in her career. Yeah, I mean, she's
1: just been she's been so impressive, right? You can pour over so many different statistics and results and, and it all points to the same conclusion. And um, it, look, she's she's a very interesting character as well. Um, it, it's a different presence. And it's going to be really fun to see what she does over the next you know decade and, and how she transforms the game even more.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, again, I, I think we've talked enough about Osaka just quickly and we recap some of our broader takeaways from the Women's Australian Open on our Deciding Point episode, which all of you listeners can go find on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. I believe you can also listen to it in podcast form on the Great Shot podcast feed. I'll save the broader takes for that show. Uh, but Jamie, your thoughts on Jen Brady's Australian Open and then again, any final thoughts on this women's event?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, very good. You, you walk away from yeah. this Australian Open and, and no doubt about it for Jen Brady, this is a win. Um, unfortunate because sure, she had chances, especially against an Osaka who wasn't playing her absolute best. But I mean, Jen Brady has really pushed the envelope over the last six months in the results that she's been able to pull off in big tournaments. I mean, that that means leaps and bounds for her career. I mean, this is this is really, really impressive stuff. And so now she's asserting herself as one of the top players in the women's game. And, and that's not necessarily something we were saying a year ago. Um, and, and so I think for her, this has just all been positive, And it's about, OK, how can we make these appearances, um, you know, consistent things as opposed to flukes like, oh, Jen Brady's in the final two oh, Jen Brady's deep in a hardcore slam, that makes sense. So this is, this is all positive for me, and, and I've been really impressed with how she's been able to carry herself through these big tournaments.
0: 23-8 and eight through her last 52 weeks. That includes her first title. That includes her first Grand Slam semifinal at the U.S. Open, her first final in Australia. She, according to Tennis Abstract, has been the second best server in women's tennis, behind only Naomi Osaka during that time frame, and it makes sense given her splits. 56% in on the first serve, 72.8 win percentage on those first serve points, 53.2 on the second serve. Yeah, the power's legitimate. She hits a heavier topspin baseball than I would say 98% of women's players and on a hard court, she is going to be the real deal. I mean, at 25 years old, we have five to seven more years hopefully of really good Jennifer Brady power tennis, and yeah, I I just think when you've done it now six months in a row, like, you can't call it a fluke. I completely agree with you. She's the real deal. This is not her cleanest match in the final, but a fantastic run. Took advantage of the draw that she had. You know, her highest seeded win was over Mukova in the semifinals, but you can only play who's across the net from you. She took advantage of her opportunity. The crazy thing is now she's got a semifinal and a final at two different Grand Slams under her belt. Yet she's only ranked number thirteen in the WTA rankings. That feels ridiculous. That Jen Brady's not a top ten player right now. That Bianca Andreescu, respectfully, is ranked ahead of Jennifer Brady. Given their past fifteen months, is just not accurate. Um, but Jen Brady deserves to be a top fifteen player. She probably. You know, she's really got a shot to crack the top 10 this year.
1: Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, look, she can she can perform well under and below the levels of what we've seen from her and still crack that measure. So.
0: Mm-hmm. So again, Jennifer Brady fantastic run through this Australian Open and hopefully we will see more of it from her in 2021, I will repeat again to hear more about our broader thoughts on the Women's Australian Open draw. Go check out the Deciding Point episode we recorded this week on our YouTube channel or on the Great Shot podcast feed. With that in mind, though, Jamie, let's switch gears now talk about the men's final. And you know, again, not to get too number heavy, but by every metric, Daniil Medvedev w- and by- was the favorite entering this men's final, which is not something you often say when the opponent in the final is Novak Djokovic, but you look at Medvedev's form, the straight set went over Rublev, the straight set went over Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals and semifinals versus the way Novak Djokovic struggled against Tiafoe, against Fritz, and just, you know, against Virev didn't seem to be the usual Novak Djokovic we suspect you also talk about the fact that you know and I've mentioned these numbers before Medvedev was holding serve at the rate of prime John Isner and breaking serve at rates better than prime Djokovic and Nadal and you just saw a player who seemed to be playing his best tennis in the moment the narrative fit he was on a 20 match win streak he was coming off of a world tour finals victory and yet now everyone remembers why Novak Djokovic is who he is. Novak Djokovic extending his record at the Australian Open, winning a, a t- record extending ninth title at the event. He extends his record in the finals now of the Australian Open to 9-0 and oh as well. As he knocks off Daniil Medvedev, 7-5, 6-2, 6-2 to capture the title You know, what's so interesting, and we can start just right at the top of this match, Jamie, Djokovic broke Daniil Medvedev in his very first service game to take a two-love lead, and then, you know, it's a credit to Medvedev, right, who steadies the ship for 3-1, gets the break right back for 3-2, and kind of looked like, okay, he's found his bearings, he's no longer nervous, he's shaken off those, you know, first or second Grand Slam final nerves with that early break of serve, and he's right back in this one, And yet, it just felt like no matter what Daniil Medvedev tried, no matter how physical he tried to make the match, it was one of those days for Novak Djokovic
1: yeah look I, I think Djokovic had a moment either before the match or very very early in the match and he told himself okay we're going to go back to basics here because to me there was a big difference in Djokovic throughout this tournament and the Djokovic who we know to just dominate on hard courts and I think you know something that I point to a lot is the aggression I, I think Djokovic said okay I'm going to go back to basics here I'm not going to be the huge aggressor sure I'm going to take my chances and win points but like the, the biggest indicator for me is like off the serve even though he had the most, uh, like a very routine match in the previous round against Karatsev, he had 17 aces in that match. You go to the, the four setter against Zverev and he hit like 23. You go against the four setter against Tiafoe, and he had like 26. Well, in this match,es he hit he, in this match he hits three aces. So to me, you know, th- there's just a difference. And obviously, yeah, Medvedev is a top tier returner and he can get his racket on so many different things. But the point remains to me that the Djokovic approach to how he was going to win points was very, very different from the start of this match. Um, and, and like I said, I think he just went back to basics and said, "Okay, I can make a million
0: balls, and I can do what's right. I'm going to win this match." Yeah, I, I just think for Daniil Medvedev. Well, uh, let's start with the Djokovic side. For Novak Djokovic, it was also physically how locked in he was from the start. And it's been a trend for Djokovic throughout this match, but or uh, throughout this tournament. But when you combine his physicality with the way he served throughout the course of this event... You get a Novak Djokovic that is maybe a new form of Novak. I mean, seriously, if he's going to be this aggressive with his first serve and in this match, he made 67% of his first serves, 173% of those points, 58% of his second serve points was so aggressive with his plus one shot. And I thought in this match in particular, did did such a good job of going down the line and just keeping Daniil Medvedev honest because Medvedev wants to lull you asleep right during the cross court rallies he's just going to keep going cross until you kind of either a rush yourself and go down the line too soon or b you kind of fall asleep during the rally and then he's the one who shocks you by changing direction and you know doing that big forehand slap down the line but Djokovic was assertive in each and every rally he was the one going down the line first in particular I thought he he must have just seen something in the film this is why he is who he is. And he took his forehand down the line and really attacked that Medvedev backhand, really got him uh, stretched on that wing. And I thought Medvedev produced a lot of errors off of that backhand side. I also thought for Djokovic uh, in particular, it was the way he just got his return of serve so deep in the court and it wasn't about placing it, at, you know, on the sideline, but just deep and at the feet of Medvedev, and he did such a good job of, you know, just playing down the center of the court as well, and just taking away everything Medvedev wanted to do. He didn't open up angles for him, or you know, open up angles and expose himself. He didn't let Medvedev improvise. He stuck to such a rigid script, and you know, for Novak Djokovic, who is the best player ever at improvising on a tennis court, who when things break down, you'd rather be Novak Djokovic than anyone else in men's tennis history. But for him to not allow the match to devolve to that, for him to f- keep things so relatively in control, that was the most surprising thing to me. I was like, How? because the question is, is, and I was really hoping to have answered, and I apologize for the rant here, Jamie, but my biggest question going into the match was, okay, if if you know if Novak Djokovic and Daniil Medvedev both play their best, is Djokovic's best still good enough to beat a guy in Medvedev right now who can literally do a little bit of everything? Who's a six foot six, sort of less fluid version of Djokovic? And the answer is no. The answer is Novak Djokovic. If you give him time, the way Daniil Medvedev does in rallies, he's going to dictate. He's going to move you around the court, and when he's locked in with a Grand Slam final mentality. There's really nothing you can do about it.
1: Yeah, it's tough. Look, I mean, Djokovic is just such a good player. I mean, I think was this was this? I, I
0: feel bad because we're just like he is so good. He really is just so. good. I know,
1: but and like, was this match necessarily a fair answer to what you just asked? Looking at the best of Daniil Medvedev, certainly not. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I, and look, Medvedev has the tools to beat Djokovic in this head-to-head matchup. Like the way their games match up. If anybody can do it, it, there's a select few. Um, and there's, there's a couple of ways to do it. You've seen the Vavrenka who can just simply slap through Djokovic on a good day. Um, but there aren't that many people who can just straight hit through him. Medvedev has this ability, like you were alluding to, where he has all the different tools sort of in his belt. He just needs to know which ones to use. And And for me, I think he just completely approached this wrong, this match in the incorrect way. I don't think he did a good job of getting the ball out of Djokovic's um, strike zone or m- mixing up the rhythm enough at all. There were too many times where Djokovic just baited Medvedev into being the aggressor and then missing, you know, Uh, Conversely, there, Djokovic was able to pounce on almost every single second serve that Medvedev put into play. I mean, this was just masterclass from Novak Djokovic, and Medvedev just looked a little lost out there. Quite honestly, he didn't quite know what to do tactically, and it it really hurt him in the end because you know Djokovic ended up walking away with this thing pretty easily.
0: You know, if you had told Daniil Medvedev he was going to make sixty four percent of his first serves, I think he would have been pretty happy with that because you look at the numbers for Medvedev throughout the course of the week here in Australia that's fairly similar to what he had done in his earlier matches uh, he was at you know 68% against CC but then you see 60 65 65 68 you know that's that's the relative range for him that he wants to hit perhaps a shade lower but again Djokovic did just such a good job of neutralizing that return and getting the point starting at neutral and yeah, I agree. Just Medvedev didn't have plus one options. You look in that five-all service game or five-six service game, excuse me, that he got broken in uh, to end the set. It was you know a plus one forehand error. It was a approach shot that hit the net tape, and so Djokovic had a little extra time, and he passes him down the line with the backhand, and just it was one of those returns Djokovic got at Medvedev's feet to get the point to neutral. That Djokovic then ends up taking control of the rally in, and ends up winning it with an inside-in forehand. Hand. I just I agree with you. Medvedev was a little bit lost out there on court, and I mean he was nine of twenty-eight on second serve points, a thirty-two yeah. percent conversion rate. That's just not going to get the job done. And I mean twenty-four winners against thirty unforced errors versus twenty winners seven uh, for Medvedev versus twenty winners seventeen unforced errors for Djokovic. Shocking to think that Djokovic was the one sixteen of eighteen at the net versus Medvedev only eight of thirteen. He just didn't put enough pressure on Novak. And it's so funny, right? Because for Djokovic, it's crazy to think the way you beat the best counterpuncher ever is by hitting through him. But, like, legitimately, you have to have the weapons to do it. And I do think Zverev has the weapons. Tsitsipas has the weapons to do it in the way Medvedev sometimes doesn't, particularly if Djokovic is as locked in physically as he was today, right? For Medvedev, if it's a wounded Djokovic, a a November or late October Djokovic, that's a different story. But this Novak Djokovic, who is coming off of two days rest after he played that Thursday semifinal, and I feel like we can't emphasize enough how important that was given djokovic's physical performance in this match but just there that is sometimes the struggle with medvedev particularly when he's playing the best of the best is okay medvedev's gonna take away all of the things you want to do but what can he do to go and win himself a match and against novak djokovic that what that's what you have to do you have to go win the match at least right now and he just didn't quite have the answers in this one so
1: i i don't know i i think i i I don't know if disagree is the right word, but look, let me say this. I think the approach, unless you are somebody who truly can hit through Novak Djokovic, uh, you know, I don't think the approach is, I need to go hit through Novak Djokovic. Like, I don't think going into this match that Daniil Medvedev should have been thinking, like I need to be the constant aggressor and hit through this counterpuncher, because to me, what Medvedev has is the perfect mix to be able to throw off the rhythm. Right? one point medvedev needs to go huge the next point he needs to throw in high heavies and push him the next point you know i I, like i think that sort of variation is really what he needs to do and get novak out of the rhythm it's a different type of pressure it's not the sort of unrelenting pressure that you can see from a del potro who's in form who can simply do this medvedev has those tools but he just needs to use the variety and attack some of the time Enough to a point where Djokovic can't be in a rhythm because, you know, even when Medvedev looked to attack, Djokovic was not out of the comfort zone at all and he just waltzed through the second and third sets.
0: I really appreciate you putting it like that. You're absolutely correct. He needed to hit through him with his variety, and I know that that was poor phrasing by me. He just needed to keep Djokovic uncomfortable. The short angles, the down the line slaps, just throw in a little bit of everything. I also think he had to, you know, approach the match with the same mindset he did against Andre Rublev, which is hey, no Uh slices here. Don't give Novak Djokovic any time because if you give Djokovic time, now he has you on a string. And it just felt like every time Daniil Medvedev turned to either the you know the backhand slice amidst the rally Djokovic is running around that ball hitting a forehand going inside in or down the line and now you're just in trouble and it's just i i agree with you he needed to keep Djokovic off balance he could be he could be playing defensively but he couldn't be on his back foot the entire time and he really was
1: yeah yeah, and it's unfortunate. To see. And I think, you know, Medvedev to me is a very smart player. That's how yeah. he's gotten so good. So he's going to learn from this big time because you know that, especially in the, the third set, he, you know, he's feeling this. Um, and it's mm-hmm. so hard to be able to change the course, especially against such a great front runner in Djokovic. But you know, he's feeling this toward the end of the match. And, and I have full confidence that, uh, you know, the next time they match up, it'll look a lot different.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I thought the break he got to start the second set, he did exactly what you were talking about. He uh-huh. did mix things up on Djokovic and he did start to employ his variety, play a little bit more aggressive. But it's just, it, A, it's really hard to sustain that against Djokovic for best yeah. of five sets. And, you know, I, again, I think if you're Neil Medvedev, this is a data point. I got to come out a little bit stronger and I, I just need a more decisive game plan more than anything else. But obviously for Medvedev, uh, he continues to display that he is going to be such a tough out on a hard court throughout the course of his career I mean Djokovic still had to work Djokovic had to play his best tennis to do this to Daniil Medvedev but of course he did and now Djokovic has 18 grand slam titles and again we addressed this a little bit on the deciding point as well but just 18 slam titles you look for Novak now where he's at in his career you know he's only a year younger than Rafael Nadal and yet for Djokovic I think he turns 30, uh, 34 this May he is now what I, last year he's now won three straight Australian Open titles he's you know 9-0 and at this event he's probably the favorite entering Wimbledon the favorite entering the U.S. Open this season your thoughts on where Djokovic goes from here
1: yeah, I mean, look, there, there's a very real scenario where he picks up two of those, uh, two of those three next slams, and so that's, I mean, that's that's got to be scary for the big three. I think you know matches like this uh, hurt the next gen case a little bit, um, but you know keep in mind that in the la- latter stat- stages of this, Zverev had a chance to take out Djokovic. Medvedev got to the finals. I mean, team not next gen, but has won the U.S. Open and can is one of the few guys who really can, you know have the weaponry and hit through Djokovic Sitsipas showed that he's not afraid of the big guys at all you give him a little more rest maybe this tournament shows up differently these big guys they know that the next gen players are coming and you know look we've been saying it for years now at this point it's just getting closer and closer and closer incrementally Um, and Medvedev has asserted himself at the top Sitsipas, Zverev you know all of these guys are going to continue to show up and it's just a question of how long can Djokovic and the rest of the the big guys hold them off matches like this you know in under two hours in a men's final tell you okay there's still a little bit of time but you know Djokovic knows that these people are pressuring him and and I think that that pressure is just going to continue mounting and mounting and mounting and players like Medvedev are going to pose challenges to him on the hard courts but I mean for now this match this match shows us that Djokovic is here for a long time
0: yeah, I just think short of a physical drop-off, he's still Novak freaking Djokovic, yeah. and his game is so predicated on physicality. So if he is banged up, you saw the effect in the Tiafoe, the Fritz, the Zverev match. He is more vulnerable now than he was three, four, five, obviously six years ago. But yeah, Novak Djokovic on a hard court, that's the toughest mystery to solve. You know, that Rafael Nadal on a clay court right next to each other. They're both 1A and the toughest questions to solve in men's tennis history. Uh, again, any final thoughts more broadly on this men's Australian Open? You, we see Medvedev, Tsitsipas, two next-geners in the semifinals. Karatsev making the the fantastic run to the semis as well. Runs from FAA and, you know, Rublev looked good. Your thoughts more broadly uh, as we put this men's Australian Open to bed? Yeah, I mean, look, I I already covered this on another mini-break. There are a lot of people
1: who I think missed their opportunities to do something really special. Um, Looking at you, Kyrgios Dimitrov, FAA... team that sort of that that section of the draw i think was a missed opportunity but you know someone did take that opportunity and and, and took the door that had been open for them and that was Karetsif. and so i'm really you know excited to see if he can build on this and, and what he can do now that he's going to be able to get into these eight bigger atp events routinely and be there and um you know people know he's dangerous and and so maybe that'll take away some of the uh, surprise element he has but really excited to see what he can do in, in the next couple of years
0: yeah, uh, it was a very very exciting Australian Open. I think if you're a next gen fan, it was another step in the right direction of their ascension of taking over uh, the rest of the tour. But of course, they still have one mountain to climb, and it's the toughest mountain in men's tennis history. And that is the mountain known as the big three. With that in mind, just want to quickly run through the rest of the results we saw last week and then talk about what all of you viewers, uh, listeners, excuse me, can expect to view this week in the professional tennis world. Let's start with those results. We saw one WTA event uh, last week simultaneously happening in Melbourne. It was the Phillips Island Trophy, and it was a trophy won by Daria Casacchina, who continues her return from injury, her ascension back into the top 30 Of the rankings as she knocks off Danielle Collins in a three-set semifinal and then Marie Buskova in a three-set final to emerge as the champion. Buskova really fun three-set semifinal victory over Andrescu as well to get to that final. That was your WTA result. You had three challengers last week. All producing again various degrees of fun action Sebastian Baez who i believe 20 year old maybe 21 year old Argentinian knocking off 23 year old Argentinian and one of the guys who was most successful on the Challenger tour at the end of last season Francesco Surindolo 636776 6'3", 6'3", in the final we also had Sunwoo Quan knocking off t- Italian next gen star Lorenzo Musetti 6263 for him to earn another Challenger title and then Jensen Brooksby friend of the show, first challenger title, The Young American Fresh Off of a Injury-filled 2020, looking to reassert his place as one of the young American prospects to watch a 2-6, 6-3, 6-love victory over Gabish Vili to earn again the first challenger title of his career with the victory. Brooksby now back up in the rankings, I believe, and I want to get this right, so if you'll all bear with me for one second, new career high of number 249 for the 20-year-old American. Jamie, your thoughts on everything else that happened last week.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, look, we'll start with Brooksby. Uh, it's very, it was a very impressive win, and it was interesting to see the momentum just switch in that match. You know, he got he got manhandled in that first set, and honestly, I don't know if you watched the whole thing, but the biggest difference was nothing in the tennis. It was just the volume in which he grunted. So I don't know what to say there, <laughs> but like, if you watch progressively through that match, it just gets louder and louder and louder. Um, but no, he did a great job uh, of sort of mounting the comeback there. He was clearly um, in Gavisvili's head by the end of that thing. I mean, the the guy, he had so much real estate up there, it was insane. So it was great to see Brooksby be able to turn a match on its head like that, and that's the sort of thing you got to do when when you're on this tour and trying to win titles like that. So that was very impressive. Uh, Look, the Quan Musetti match was very entertaining. I think both of them, um, in my opinion, got a little bit too cute. You saw, I mean, it's indoor hardcore, and both of them have the ability to hit the big ball, but you saw a lot of trying cute, short angles, drop shots that I would say, you know, leave that for the clay court perhaps, but uh, no, I mean, really good tennis and and really fun stuff to be able to break the rhythm from seeing everybody play on the Aussie Open Blue for two weeks.
0: Yeah, I would say you know, uh, again, to your point about Brooksby, the thing he does best, and I know we are being a bit facetious there, but it's the way he competes. I mean, the guy just yeah. makes so many balls, and he's going to scrap and claw, and it's not going to be as pretty as Korda or as efficient as Nakashima, but it's just as good, and it's just as effective. And, yeah, it's a little risky. Uh, but it works and for him again that's such a big confidence boost given he missed it and you know he went to college in 2020 wasn't able to play any matches due to injury and obviously the pandemic and then for him to win a couple UTR events in January and early February then fly out to South Africa and win this title it's a huge moment for the young American and of course we're so happy for him so shout out to you Jensen Shout out to that Quan Musetti match. I mean, those are two shot makers, as you mentioned, and uh, both. that's a top 100 match, in my opinion. Those are two guys who I think will both end the season, hopefully. Oh, Musetti, maybe not, but I think he will end the season in the top 100. Quan's already there, so not a surprise to see him play that level. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, I think when people think about Sebastian Baez, perhaps that's not a name that jumps out to you. Keep an eye on the young Argentinian, particularly on clay courts. He's not the biggest player, he's 5'7", 5'8", 5'9", but the way he moves around the court, the pressure he puts on you, uh, he is awfully talented. And then for Kasichina, I mean, she was top 10 before she was injured. She is someone who clearly, you watch her movement, her serve, her forehand there, you know, in the upper echelons of the women's game. And Buskova is someone who's going to make a million balls. And Kasichina just kind of you know, weathered the storm, kept to her game plan, and the confidence boost she now will get from this victory. She had a bunch of good results at the end of last season to finally get back in the winner's circle. Uh, that's awesome for her. I continue to stand by my Bushkova's awesome takes, and, you know, another final from her kind of reaffirms that as well, but, you no, know, more broadly, just a really, really fun week of tennis, and of course, we've got another one on our hands this week, I think we have, let me look through here, yes, we have one WTA event, that event uh, happening in Adelaide, number one seed Ashley Barty, going to take on Danielle Collins in the round of 16, that's a fun match, but your other seeds here, the two seed Belinda Bencic, the number three seed here on the weekend, uh, Joe Conta, your number five uh, four seed Elisa Mertens, your number five seed Iga Shviontech. Uh, and then you've got three ATP events on the week. I'm not going to read all the seeds there, but some of the players in play, you've got Manorino, you've got Schwartzman, you've got uh, Kasimenevich, you've got uh, Roberto Bautista Agut, David Goffin, Hubi Hercots. Jamie, your thoughts on the and ATP action?
1: Yeah, I mean, look the the WTA action that's staying down in Australia. I think the person I've got to be watching the most is Ash Barty. Um, I, like I said, I was, and I don't want to be too harsh here, but I was very disappointed um, in how her campaign ended in Australia, and I'm sure she is too. Um, and, and so I'd like to see her bounce back and, and take that you know bracket by storm because she's the best player in that draw, and you know. She, she just should be winning that. It was, it was an absolute shame the way she went out and just completely folded um, at the end of the Aussie Open. So I'm going to be watching her and hopefully seeing some bounce back. And, and then, yeah, look, all of my favorites playing in these tournaments, uh, my boy Jill Simone and, and the rest of the French um, going at it and the hard indoor courts. It's a ton of fun. Look, Sebastian Corda's on court right now going up against the French veteran in Joe Willie. It's a lot of fun, and it's great to see some of these players who you maybe haven't seen as much, uh, as well as people like Hugo Humbert. Can they continue um, to to have a lot of momentum moving into twenty twenty one? So tons of great tennis out there, and a great way to switch gears after the, the first slam of the year.
0: Sebastian Corda lost just two points on serve in that first set against Sangha. Just two points—that's nuts. And it's yeah, not bad. I, no, not too bad. Not too bad. I agree. I didn't mention we get the Sin Man back in action, Andy Murray back in action. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun week of tour play. Of course, we've got two challengers as well. Lorenzo Musetti uh, taking uh, uh, taking place in the challenger, uh, or in one of the challengers, I believe. It's also in Italy, of course. We've also got a challenger in Nur Sultan this week uh, in Kazakhstan as well. So, fun action up and down the board. Plenty for us to talk about here at Cracked Rackets, so rest assured we'll be bringing back the GSP Ace of the day starting this week. We'll keep rocking and rolling each and every day. On the Mini Break Podcast as well. If you have missed any of our coverage, though, of Australia, of any of the college tennis that has happened these past three weeks, because there really has been an overwhelming amount, amount of incredible action, be sure to go catch up on everything by tuning into our website, crackrackets.com. You need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Crackrackets. You want to message me, I am at Great Shot Pod. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, The Great Shot Podcast, cracked interviews, Inside Out and Sideline Podcast. A shout out as always to our super producers, Max Ligger and Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order. With that in mind, Jamie, any final thoughts on what was a fantastic weekend of tennis?
1: Uh, I, I don't want I I to say I'm glad it's over. <laughs> Um, But I am very happy for this next sort of period of tennis. So we'll just leave it on that positive note.
0: Yeah, no, it only gets better from here. The action rocking and rolling as this 2021 ATP WTA and really broader tennis season tries to get its legs underneath it. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host, James Foster, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.